Happy Father's Day. Fathers, known and unknown and just meeting. Father, Happy Father's Day to you all. God bless and keep you and God continue to bless and keep you. You and your families and your, your children. Do we have sound? Good to go. Thank you. And to all of our viewers about the United States and about the community, hello, Happy Father's Day. We love you. And a very special thank you and good morning. We love you to our international viewers. Thank you for joining us for the exposition of God's Word. God bless you and keep you. And we pray that His Holy Spirit will drive home to your soul, your heart, and your mind, to everyone watching and listening, the truth of His Word. Um, was, uh, was your mother mentioned a little while ago? Okay. My mom? Oh, no. uh, if I may, yeah. uh, please pray for uh, Dan's mother, Jean Cecil. She's having uh, some pretty bad back problems again and with a potential trip coming up in a week. So pray for her that she heals up and gets the treatment that she needs and can, can go on her, her trip to see her son. With that, let's pray. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, ruler of heaven and earth, one and only Creator, Redeemer, God, you who are absolute and ultimate reality. Please accept our thanks and our worship and our gratitude that you made us, that you redeemed us. You made us and redeemed us to be part of your divine plan, to glorify you and enjoy you forever, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you for everyone that is gathered in person today. Bless them, keep them, they and their families. Give them a wonderful week. Give them an opportunity this week to proclaim the truth that they will hear and are given this morning by way of your Spirit and John the Apostle. We pray for everyone watching and listening the world over that the gospel of Jesus Christ will do its work. You have given us the promise that if we are dutiful and proclaim your word, your Spirit will take your word to the souls and hearts of minds who all who hear that they will be confronted with the absolute and ultimate truth. And yes, a decision is expected and demanded when the gospel, the good news of the person and work of Jesus the Christ is proclaimed. We thank you for the opportunity to do our part, O Sovereign God. Thank you for our folks who are watching and listening the world over. Bless them and keep them safe. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Nigeria in this very difficult time of violence and persecution. We pray for the peace of that country for peace and order to be restored to that nation and for persecution against your people to end. But we pray that even by way of the persecution, the gospel of Jesus Christ will grow in that country and into the neighboring nations of that region of Africa. And so, dear God, as we open the truth of your word, let everything that is said and done here this morning bring praise and honor and glory to you. May the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God our one and only rock and redeemer, you who are our only hope and you who are more than hope enough for one and for all. In the name of Jesus, the Word made flesh, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Would you stand with me please to honor the reading of the Word of the Lord this morning? Back to the prologue of the Gospel of John. Some of the most wonderful words ever written of the greatest story ever told, the greatest truth ever given. Ever given. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. We will actually uh, complete the prologue today. Title of today's message, Completion of the Prologue, The Word, 
made flesh. First John 14, or pardon me, John 1, 14 to 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus the Christ. No man has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is at the bosom or in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. So here as we resume our exploration of John's magnificent prologue, certainly one of my favorite passages or portions in all of Scripture, certainly one of the most important, although you shouldn't elevate one passage of the Bible above another. This is very much, as I heard from someone else this week, the greatest message, the greatest story ever told, the greatest truths ever revealed to humanity. Here we are confronted with what is history's most amazing event. History's single most amazing event. The incarnation of God the Word. Entering His own creation. Entering history as we know it physically. History's most amazing event and reality. Really, even to those of us who have heard this message, perchance for many years or have been believers for many years, it is shocking. It really is astounding and shocking. And the force of the shock of this message should not ever be lost upon us, ever. It is surprising. It is scandalous in some ways to sinful human beings. Always has, always will be. And for the finite human mind, yes, of course. We are to grasp it, we are to appropriate it, we are to try to understand it, but it is oh so difficult to fully grasp. That is the incarnation of the Word. This person who is the divine Word that John has been teaching us about. Uh, incarnation from karni, meaning the infleshing, the taking upon of material, corporeal, physical flesh. That's what we mean by the word incarnation. The incarnation of the second member of the triune Godhead, John teaches us. The infleshing of the Son of God, who is God the Son. So in today's verses, John confronts us with his dear old brother J.I. Packer, wonderful theologian who's in the Father's house now. He just made his transition to the Father's house, I believe, within the past year or so. I will quote, give you a few uh, quotes with a few comments from his wonderful book, Knowing God that I know that I've recommended to you folks before. It is something of a Christian classic. It's one of the most wonderful books of, of biblical Christian theology written in, in modern times. And I read through chapter 5 in particular several times a year. And I always make a point to read it several times in December at around Christmas time. Chapter 5 is called God Incarnate. Get that book and read that book for that chapter. That chapter alone is more than worth the price of the book. J.I. writes, and he's absolutely correct, in the prologue to the Gospel of John, we are confronted with the supreme mystery with which the Gospel of Jesus Christ confronts us. 
And that is the really staggering truth claim or proclamation teaching that Jesus of Nazareth was and is the divine word of John's prologue. Jesus was the word who was in the beginning, who was with God and who was God. This God made man and that he took upon himself humanity without any loss whatsoever of his true deity or without any loss whatsoever of his divine attributes. So the message here is that this Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and fully divine as he was truly and fully a human being. It is here in the incarnation, he writes, the incarnation of the word that the most profound and unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lies. According to John, the eternal word became flesh. God became man. The divine son, the divine word, became a first century Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth in a real physical body. The more that you think about this, the more staggering this truth, this event becomes. Nothing in all of human philosophy or fiction is so great or is so fantastic as this truth, this factual event of the incarnation of God, the Son, the divine word. If Jesus was the same divine person as the eternal word in John's prologue, the Father's agent in creating the universe, then it is no wonder at all if fresh acts of creative supernatural power marked his coming into this world, his life in this world, and his exit from it. It is not strange at all, it is not impossible at all, that he, the author of all life, should rise from the dead. If he truly was the eternal word, God the Son, it is much more startling that he should die in the first place than that he should rise again. And if the eternal Son of God, the divine word, really did submit to taste death on our behalf, it is not at all impossible or strange that his death should have saving significance for this doomed human race. Once we accept, once we grant that Jesus of Nazareth was the divine word, as John teaches, it actually becomes unreasonable to find difficulty in any of the gospel accounts. As the dear old brother writes, this is all of a piece, folks, and it hangs together as one completely. The incarnation of God, the word, is in itself an unfathomable mystery to the finite human mind, yes. But it makes sense of everything else in John's Gospel that we will encounter. And it makes sense of everything else that the New Testament teaches. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, or of the Father, full of grace and truth. So first phrase, let's unpack. And the Word became flesh. This divine Word that John has been teaching us about, that we've been exploring these past few weeks, this divine person who has eternal pre-existence, an eternally existing being, God, the one in the beginning who was with God, who was God, who John continues to teach us is God's true light to reveal God himself and God's true truth. To quote Francis Schaeffer, God's true truth to humanity. He came into this world actually and physically in a real event. He became flesh. The word flesh that John uses is sarx, S-A-R-X, in the original Greek. This word is, it's hard to explain this word. 
it's something of a blunt word. It's, I don't want to say it's something of a crude word, but it could almost approach that in certain contexts in which this word is used. It's blunt. It is somewhat, may I use the word, graphic. It is a word for flesh that means literally meat. As in real muscle, real flesh, real skin, real sinew, real tissue. And the reason that John is using that word is an important reason. He is using this word to hammer home the fact, this most important fact, that the eternal God, God the Son, this divine being, who was God the Father's agent in creating the universe, he really did come into history, into this creation, in John's lifetime, in a very real human body. Real bone, real flesh, real muscle, real tissue, real bones and blood. A real human being. He really took upon himself physical humanity and a human nature. That is the point. And he really drives that point home. The divine word, by the by, as J.I. wrote, did not cease in any way, shape, or form being God when he took upon himself humanity. When Jesus took upon himself a human nature, he did not in any way, shape, or form divest himself of his divine attributes or his divinity. He did not step down from being the eternal word, God the Son. Never think of the incarnation of Jesus as a lessening or a subtraction. It is not that at all. He is taking upon Himself something that He was not before or did not have before. The incarnation of Jesus is something extra. The incarnation of Jesus is a plus sign. It is never a minus sign. Very important. This is no lessening or subtraction of deity at all. It is an addition. Uh, let's go to the great Christ hymn, if those of you want to turn with me. Paul drives this point home as well in um, Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. I'm tempted to stay here for a while, but I can't. <laughs> Especially in the original vocabulary. This is what we call the Great Christ Hymn. It is, it is, of course, sacred scripture inspired by God. But we believe that this was also a very early Christian creed or Christian hymn from the first century. And Paul includes it in his letter to the Philippian church. Again, it's one of the most magnificent statements in the Bible of the true identity, the true person and work of Christ. A bald-faced, explicit statement of His true deity and His true humanity. Philippians 2, let's begin in verse 5, running start. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus, who also, though He existed, Huparkon in the Greek, he existed, he lived, he always did, he does now, he ever will, in the form morphe, from which we get more for metamorphosis. He existed always in the very form of God, a statement of deity, and did not regard equality with God, God the Father, one with God the Father, a thing to be grasped or jealously seized or held onto or guarded. But he cannot, oh, he emptied himself. Not of his divine attributes or divine being. He emptied himself of his position and stepped down off his throne, if I may express it that way, to become a human being, to become the suffering servant prophesied by Isaiah, to enter history as a human being and offer himself as a sacrifice. 
for sinful humanity. That is how he emptied himself. And when he did so, he became a human being. He became what? A bondservant. How's that for the eternal king humbling himself? And, he, and being made in the likeness of men, took upon himself a real human body and a real human nature, and being found in the appearance as a man, genuinely a man, not just a vision, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Of course, this is Christ's sacrificial death on behalf of his people. Even death on a horrible, horrific Roman cross. Let me give you a quote from the ESV Study Bible. Uh, those of you who have this study Bible, I refer you to it in our journey through the, the Gospel of John. The study Bible notes were written by a great theologian by the name of Andreas Kostenberger, who has written a wonderful commentary. Actually, I believe more than one book on the Gospel of John. And in his ministry, he's sort of made the Gospel of John something of an area of expertise, if I may call it that, in his ministry. He writes, and this is an understatement, but at the absolute truth, this is the most amazing event in all of history. The eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, infinitely holy Son of God took upon Himself a human body and nature and lived among humanity as one who was truly God and truly man at the same time in one person, end quote. Allow me to add the divine and human nature of Christ. By the way, folks, if it, oh my goodness, this is what frustrates me about Sunday mornings. I don't have so much time. If we were going through the Gospel of John on Tuesday nights, believe me, we would be here for a good while before moving on. This is one part of the unfathomable mystery for human beings. And this is what unbelievers have stumbled upon. Many people have stumbled on and they continue to. How can God be a triune being? How can He be one in His nature and His essence and His being, which this clearly teaches us, and yet three distinct persons within that being? It is so. And how can the one and only unique Son of the Father, the Word who became flesh, be two natures in one person, indivisible and indissoluble? It is so even though it may take us eternity to grasp it, and we may never even in eternity grasp it. For He is finite, He is infinite, and we are finite. You, the finite will never reach the limits of the infinite. But the two natures of Christ, the divine and human nature, let me make this remark. They are fully united without being fused or compartmentalized and somehow patched and tacked and taped and cobbled together. No, the two became perfectly one. Indivisibly one. And so he remains and shall for eternity. This is the supreme revelation of God to humanity. John hammers this truth home numerous times in this prologue. He will again before we're finished with the prologue this morning. The supreme revelation of God to humanity. This very personal bodily visitation. Folks, this really occurred in real geography, real space, real time, real history, in Roman Palestine in the first century A.D. God chose to manifest Himself to humanity in numerous ways, in numerous times, throughout history, the era of the Old Covenant. But now, the era of the New Covenant, according to the divine plan, about 4 to 6 B.C., the turn of the first century B.C., first century A.D., he chose to make himself fully known by divine plan, finally and ultimately, in a real historical man. Jesus of Nazareth. 
the Jesus of John's gospel. And John writes, and he dwelt among us. Or let me offer you this translation. And when I offer you another translation, please believe me. It is a faithful word-for-word equivalent from the original language. He dwelt among us as in a tent. That's interesting. That's what John writes. He dwelt amongst us as in a tent or a tabernacle. What we translate into English as dwelt among us is skenao. And skenao in the original Greek, if you want to quite literally translate that into English, it means pitched his tent. (laughs) That's a thing to say. But do you know your Old Testament well? This is quite meaningful immediately if you know the history of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant well. Skinao pitched his tent. So John is saying, by taking on human flesh, God the Son pitched his tent with the nation of Israel and arguably the rest of humanity in the first century A.D. He pitched his tent, his body, amongst human beings in this world. Now this phrase, pitched his tent, or pitching his tent, does this jog your memory in the Old Testament? This should, well, John is directly referring to, is directly alluding to God living personally amongst his people at the time of the Old Covenant, the old nation of Israel after the Exodus. God personally meeting and living amongst his people in that wilderness tent, the tabernacle. But now John is saying, Now that the prophesied Messiah has arrived and has inaugurated the new covenant, now at this time in history, the most exciting time in history, the Messiah, the Word made flesh, He Himself is the tabernacle, the temple. His very body is the ultimate temple or tabernacle upon His arrival where God meets with people, where God meets with human beings. He is the ultimate visitation again. The ultimate revelation of God to human beings. The most important event in all of history. And John continues, And we beheld His glory. This is a great statement as well. John's an eyewitness. He lived this. He encountered this. He saw this. He was commissioned by the divine word himself to proclaim the truth of this visitation to the world. We beheld His glory. Now, the verb in the original Greek that John uses for beheld... This is an important choice of word as well. This word indicates this. It's this kind of beheld. A very careful, deliberate study. A very careful, deliberate scrutiny of something that one sees and hears or experiences. A very careful observation. That's what John's saying. Or Sherlock Holmes would say, my favorite fictional character, observation and deduction. Very careful reasoning concerning what one sees or experiences or encounters. That's what John means by, we beheld Him. This beholding the Word's presence, His glory, His manifested presence in the flesh, was a close, carefully studied, accomplished thing. And now John is telling you all about it. Glory, as in we beheld His glory. The word glory is doxa, from which we get doxology. We are praising God for His glory. Now, in this particular context, we beheld His glory. This is what glory means in this context. The manifested, demonstrated magnificence of God's personal presence. That's what John says Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ arriving in the flesh. He was the manifested, demonstrated magnificence of God's personal presence in this world. That's who He is. Jesus Christ Himself. He is the glory of God. 
revealed to humanity. And John will speak a very great deal about God's glory revealed in Jesus in this gospel. John is saying we. Who's we? Well, obviously, John, he himself, the other original band of the disciples, and if I may express it this way, the first wave of Jesus' first friends and followers, we, we all, that little band, we actually beheld, studied, carefully observed the glory of the Word made flesh. We beheld the glory of God in Christ. We personally saw, encountered the incarnation of the divine Word. We lived it. We were with Him. In fact, John can say that one of the most meaningful evenings of all of history, I laid my head on His actual physical shoulder or chest. That is how I have encountered God, and I now am telling you all about it. All about Him. You can know Him and encounter Him as well. We beheld His glory, the glory, the beautiful, the wonder, the magnificence of this most amazing event of history. This is why John is writing his gospel, folks. He's an eyewitness to this. It is now his responsibility to proclaim this truth in this event to the world. John beheld all of the attributes of deity shining through the quote-unquote veil of Jesus' flesh. The veil of the divine words, human nature. Now this statement, very important, we must get this right. If we get anything right, we have to get this gospel right. We beheld His glory, the glory of the one and only begotten of the Father. Now I'm going to pick that phrase apart very carefully from the original language. Or let me offer you this translation. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Or this, folks, I truly hang my hat with the New Testament Greek scholars who say that this is truly the most correct and accurate translation to English of what John writes. We beheld His glory, the glory of the one and only unique Son of the Father. That is the most accurate translation. We beheld the glory of the one and only truly unique Son of the Father. D.A. Carson writes in his commentary, This glory displayed in the incarnate Word is the kind of glory a Father grants to His one and only best loved Son, and this Father is God Himself. Thus it is nothing less than God's glory that John and his friends witnessed in the Word made flesh. End quote. So this statement is obviously a reference to Christ, the divine word, to his deity, to his humanity, to his what? His Trinitarian sonship. This is the magnificent thing about John's gospel. Not only is he teaching you about the full humanity and full deity of Jesus, at the same time he is teaching you of the doctrine of the Trinity, the triune being of God. And this is a reference to Jesus' triune sonship. His identity as Son of God, who is God the Son. The fact that He was the divine Son from all of eternity. Or as we would say now, the second person of the Trinity. The triune Godhead. Son of the Father, one with the Father. Again, I quote the ESV Study Bible. Another good remark in their textual note on this verse. Jesus is the Son of God, not in the sense of being created or born as a human son is created or born. But in the sense of being a son who is exactly like his father in all attributes, and, yes, in the sense of having a father-son relationship with God the Father. The Greek 
word underlying only or only begotten. I love this word and I love explaining this word. It is monogenes. It is absolutely critical. What we translate into English as only or only begotten, it is monogenes. And this word means one of a kind. One of a kind. Truly, totally unique. You see why John is using this word? This is why this translation, the only unique or one and only unique Son of the Father, is the best translation and is a better one than only begotten. John is saying that the divine Word who became flesh is the one and only unique Son of the Father. Son of God, who is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, divine and one with the Father in His nature and His essence and His being. That's what He is saying. And so therefore, by virtue of that fact, He, the Word made flesh, is what? He is full of grace and truth. And the word John uses there is pleroma a derivative of the word pleroma. And pleroma, I've given you this word before, it means this kind of full. It means bursting at the seams full, busting wide open full, filled up and overflowing, spilling over full. That's how full the word made flesh is of the grace and truth of God the Almighty. That's how He is full of grace and truth. The glory of God made manifest, put on display in the Word made flesh. He was bursting at the seams, overflowing full of the grace and truth of God. Let me pick apart those two words. Grace is kadis. It actually means the favor, the mercy of God. You see what John is saying? Christ the divine Word, by virtue of the fact of being the divine Word, the true revelation of God to humanity. He was full of God's graciousness to fallen humanity. That's the greatest message ever told. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Jesus the Christ, the Word made flesh, bursting with the graciousness and mercy of God. He is the ultimate graciousness of God and mercy of God given to humanity. He is the very personification. He's the source. He's the giver of the mercy and favor of God to fallen mankind. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the greatest message ever heard. He is also truth, Aletheia. If you know anybody named Aletheia, make sure she's living up to her namesake. Aletheia is truth. And in this context, Aletheia truth, the way John uses this word in this context, means this. Yes, truth as in factual, actual reality. That's that which comports with actual reality. That which is genuine and absolutely and totally without any error or falsehood. John is saying the divine word who became flesh is the very source of true truth, true reality. Folks, this is a desperately needed message in a culture gone mad where unfortunate people believe they can create their own reality. It is a lie. A heinous, destructive lie. There is only one truth. He who is the truth, he who is the personification and the source of all truth. Jesus the Christ, the Word made flesh. God the Son. The second person of the one and only truly living God. The source of all true truth and reality. John is saying the divine Word who became flesh is the very source of all truth. He is the ultimate revealer of God's true truth. He is our final and true reality. 
and I already realized I did something that I said this morning I wasn't going to do. In preaching the Gospel of John, which makes me very excited, so I apologize for my behavior in preaching the Gospel of John. You should get excited in teaching the Gospel of John. My wife told me last week, do you realize last week in teaching the Gospel of John, I think it was you, maybe it was my parents, you actually became a pulpit pounder? And I just did it again. Forgive me. Verse 15. I'll try to move a little more quickly, but please forgive me in taking the time. I don't want to rob you of any of the truth here. It's most important. Most important to these folks out there watching and listening. John the baptizer, bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Let me translate for you this way. Uh, John testified concerning him, meaning the word, made flesh, and he cried out, saying, This was the one of whom I said, He, is, he who is coming behind me has always been ahead of me. For he existed before me. He, often, he always has surpassed me because he was always before me. That is an amazing thing to say. That's a staggering thing to say. Think about it. John is saying more there than what you may realize. It's an amazing statement by John the Baptist concerning Jesus at the very beginning of his public ministry. And apparently here, by the power of God's Spirit, again, I refer you to the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke, for more information on John the Baptist. If you recall, the baptizer, according to the Gospel of Luke, was filled with the Spirit of God the Almighty in utero. While he was in his mother's womb, he was filled with the Spirit of God. Before he ever exited his mother's womb into this world, he was filled with the Spirit of God on mission to be the herald of the Messiah and proclaim the greatest news ever told. It's amazing. So apparently, by the power of the Holy Spirit, John is given tremendous spiritual and supernatural insight as to Jesus' true identity. John is identifying Jesus as, yes, the Messiah. He refers to Jesus' rank and status, and he refers to the pre-existence of Christ. He existed before me. He was before me. Folks, when he says that, he's not saying, oh, my cousin Jesus was born a few days before me. He was born a few weeks. He's a few months older than me. No, he is saying he was pre-existent in eternity past. He existed before anything or any of us. That's who he really is. So John's statement is one of divine time and rank. As the eternal word, Jesus existed before John was born. Jesus is higher than John in every way. He is the Messiah who pre-existed John and everybody and everything else. He is the Christ, the Messiah, who is divine. John knew this. And we must remember, why is he saying this? What, is the what was the purpose of John's the Baptist ministry? Well, folks, it wasn't just to baptize people. Mm, that was very, very important. But he was baptizing people as a baptism of repentance to prepare for the arrival of the Word made flesh. The most important part of his ministry, or his ministry, pardon me, was announcing the arrival of the Word made flesh. The purpose of John saying this, the purpose of his witness and testimony concerning Jesus was that so that those who heard his witness and his testimony about Jesus would believe in Jesus. And as John writes, by believing, thereby have life in his name. By believing in his name means believing in the sum total of his person. And that is how fallen human beings get real life, to be blunt. 
Now, verses 16 and 17, let me read them together so, and unpack them together so we don't interrupt the flow of John's thought. For of His fullness, the fullness of the Messiah, we have all received grace and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus the Christ. Or, I offer you this translation, For out of the fullness of Christ the Word we have all received grace upon grace. For while the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through or by way of Jesus the Christ. Now what is he saying here? That's a very interesting thing to say. John is saying this. John is saying that he and his fellow believers, he and the original believers of Jesus, and by extension, all believers, all Christian believers who have received the new birth, this new life by way of Christ, the divine word, they have all experienced, they have all received the blessings of the fullness of Christ's person and work. All of the fullness of who He is, all of the fullness of what He has done. You receive the blessings of that when you receive new life in His name. That's what John is saying. Believers receive and experience the blessings of the eternal Word's work on their behalf. Believers receive grace upon grace. You know what he's saying? It's all piled up one upon the other, and it keeps on coming. Praise God. Believers receive grace upon grace out of the infinite supply of grace and mercy and favor from the person of Jesus, the divine word. One grace or one favor replaces or piles on the other. As William Hendrickson writes in his commentary, one manifestation of the unmerited favor of God in Christ is hardly here and gone when another arrives. That's what John means by grace upon grace. Now what of verse 17? That's an interesting thing to say. What does John mean in verse 17? Well, obviously, he is making a statement, a contrast and comparison. A contrast or comparison between the Old Covenant, the Old Testament era, the moral law of God given to Israel through or by way of Moses. And he's comparing that era of history with the era of the New Covenant, the era of the Messiah, the Christ, the Word made flesh, now that He has arrived. And John is saying simply that the Old Covenant, or the New Covenant, fulfills the Old. The new covenant accomplishes the old. The new covenant completes the old. The new covenant replaces the old. And the new covenant is greater than the old. The new covenant is everything that the old covenant was pointing to or anticipating. The new covenant in Christ, the Word made flesh, is greater than the old covenant either under the great Moses. The new covenant fulfills, completes the old now that Christ, the Messiah, the Word, has arrived in human flesh to perform His atoning work. The old was good. He's not saying the old was bad. The old was good. It was perfect for the time. It was all part of the plan. But the old covenant looked forward to as part of the plan, looked forward to the new covenant. So now that the divine word, the Messiah, has become flesh and arrived according to plan to perform his atoning work, the new covenant is greater than the old, all according to plan. So you see what John is saying again? He is saying that it is the final and ultimate expression of God's grace and truth to humanity coming in with the arrival of the Messiah. He is greater even than Moses. Okay? Now, notice this is important. How does all this come to people? How does all this come to us? It's, it's, it's a detail, but it's important. Notice John says the law was given by God to Moses. This is all graciously given to humanity by God. Moses didn't write the law. Moses didn't come up with the law. Moses didn't give the law. God gave the law to Moses. 
and Moses was God's messenger. Now then notice John says that this ultimate expression of grace and truth given to humanity were what? Realized or arrived or given by way of Jesus the Messiah, God the Son. Old covenant was given by God, the new covenant is given by God. Old covenant given by God the Father, the new covenant arrives by way of God the Son. The Word made flesh. The ultimate expression or reality of God's grace and truth given to human beings arrived and was realized only by way of Jesus the Christ. The personal arrival of the Word who became flesh. Notice also another detail. Have you noticed yet? This is the very first time in this gospel that we are given the full name and title or full name and rank of the divine word. He is Jesus, the Christ, the prophesied Jewish Messiah. That's who the word made flesh is. Now, verse 18 our closing verse for the day, closing verse of the prologue. No man has seen God, or no one, no person, anthropos. No, no, no member of mankind, humankind, has seen God at any time. The monogenes, the only truly unique son of the Father. In the original language, this is important. Monogenes theos. The one and only unique one who is God. That's why I love the translation of the New American Standard Bible. They truly translate this correctly. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. Folks, this is one of the most magnificent verses of one of the most magnificent passages in all of the Bible. You realize what he is saying here? It's a magnificent verse in truth. Let me offer you this translation as well. God, and this is quite literally from the Greek, God Himself, no one has ever seen. The monogenes, the one and only unique God, who is embraced upon the very bosom of the Father. This is so beautiful. It's just, it's magnificent. God Himself no one has ever seen, the monogenes, the one and only unique Son of the Father who is embraced upon the very bosom of the Father. It is He who has made the Father known. That's the most amazing message you will ever hear, that you will ever receive. One of the most wonderful truth statements in all of the Scriptures. Let me work this for you word by word this way of explanation. God Himself, the one and only true eternal being, the one and only true eternal creator God. He himself, nobody, no human being has ever seen. Now they've come close. Many people have experienced God. They knew God. They encountered God. Some of these men were even called God's friend, but they didn't see him. Now what does he mean by see him? Well, Moses came close. Isaiah came close. Some of the other prophets came close. But he means this. He doesn't just mean God is pure spirit, and in the past, He did not take upon Himself a body, so therefore you couldn't see Him. Well, yes, that's true, but John means this. No sinful fallen human being has ever beheld the true unveiled, undisguised, unhidden, 
very face and being of God the Almighty Himself. That has not happened. Now, perhaps it happens when the righteous die and are escorted into the presence of the Father. Who knows? That may not even happen until we arrive at that time in history called the new heaven and the new earth, where John the Apostle in the Revelation says the greatest thing of all, and they shall see God. That's the sum total of the existence of any sentient being, angelic or human being, to gaze upon the personal being of God with no barrier and no veil in between whatsoever. John is saying, that hasn't happened yet. The Word made flesh, the one who is in the beginning, the one who is God, the Father's agent in creation, the one who is with God, the one who is God, the monogamous, the one and only truly unique Son of the Father, who is one with the Father, he has this type of relationship and always has and always will with God the Father. He is in an embrace with God the Father. He lays His head upon the very breast of God the Father. It is He, the Word made flesh, this Jesus that I am writing about, that I am telling you about. It is He who has made God the Father known to humanity. That's what He's saying. Utterly breathtaking. Utterly shocking. Utterly magnificent. John is saying yet again in this prologue. He's teaching, he's proclaiming to you, to I, to everyone, that one truth, folks, that we must all grasp and we must all come to terms with in the end. Jesus the Christ, the eternal Word made flesh, when He arrived in the flesh, He was and He is and He ever shall be the ultimate revealer of God, the ultimate self-expression of God, the ultimate self-disclosure of God the Almighty, the only God the Almighty, to humanity. And absolutely everything else that you will encounter in the rest of this gospel flows from this one basic, foundational, fundamental fact. You see, John is hitting us from the very beginning in this prologue. You must get this. Because I'm going to unpack his story. The whole rest of my gospel is going to be all about this. Or to close, as the Apostle John will write, or pardon me, the Apostle Paul will write, same truth, a little more succinctly, a little more bluntly, as Paul was wont to do or be from time to time. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul writes, Jesus the Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Welcome to the Gospel of John. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, I thank you for the patience of all of those gathered here personally. And I pray for the patience of all of those watching and listening today and in the days to come, that they would absorb and appropriate the truth of the prologue of John's Gospel the most important piece of news, the most important piece of truth that any human being has or ever will hear. Help us by the power of your Spirit and the power of the truth of your proclaimed Word to appropriate this truth in and over our life that we may, as John would wish, receive life in the name, eternal life in the name of He who is the Word made flesh, the ultimate revelation of yourself to human beings. Bless this, O God, we pray. May it bear great fruit 
for Jesus' glory and for your kingdom. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. To dismiss...